Well, I think we need a name for the people that listen to the podcast, to take ah, the time. I think they need to have some sort of okay. I don't know, identity. That waffle Meisters. Waffle. Waffle Easters. Yeah. Waffle Easters. We'll see how far it goes. Okay. Okay. Anyway, we're, uh, we're, we're, this rambling and waffling is not actually in the presence of our guests that we've got on the interview this no. week. No, no, um, no. This uh, interview was done... Oh, quite a while a ago. A while ago now. April it 2019. Was, yes. So. Quite a bit earlier this year. So we talked to Professor Sol Picciotto. We did, yes. And he's uh, Emeritus Professor at uh, the University of Lancaster. He is, yeah. yeah. And I, he's somebody I've known for a, a really long time, actually. He was on the um, the UUK Copyright Working Group, as we used to be called, yeah. um, when I first joined more than 10 years ago. Um, and uh, he he's still like a corresponding member of our group, so yeah. um, but he doesn't very often come to meetings. And we wanted to have a chat with him, didn't we, about sort of the the kind of background to educational copying in the UK and his experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So this one is it's a bit longer than um, some of the other uh, podcasts we've done, uh, but and there's quite a bit of detail in there. Uh, about what happened in in higher education and copyright licensing. Um, I mean, it's a really long and detailed history, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, And it goes all the way back to the 1960s Mm. um, Mm. with Sol's first experiences of of copying material for, for teaching purposes. Um, all the way throughout the court cases, the, the, yeah. the main kind of copyright tribunal case that happened in the UK. And since we've recorded it, Sol actually gave um, a really excellent keynote at the um, UUK um, summer copyright summer event, didn't he, on the yeah. 9th of September. So it was a, a lot shorter, um, his keynote, but it kind of, if anybody... Um, was there and enjoyed it or they've seen the slides that we've got up on the website yeah. then I think they'll find this podcast particularly interesting so yeah it goes into it in a bit more detail it does but at the same time it's not just the detail about uh you know what happened in in the United Kingdom around higher education copying he's uh, we talked to him quite a lot about some of the legal principles behind copyright law, why it exists. We do, yeah. So, you know, we, we it's taken us a while to get round to uh, reviewing this and, and, and putting it together, but actually on review, it's 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 one of the best interviews I think we've done. Absolutely. Um, you know, in terms yeah. of uh, yeah. really getting into some of the issues. So, yeah. so it's great. We I did want to do a little bit of jargon busting at the, at the beginning of this. So we've got um, yeah, discussion about uh, things specific to the UK. Mm. The CLA are the Copyright Licensing Agency. I think many people who follow the podcast would be aware of them. Um, but there are some other things in there. We, we mentioned clerks. Yeah, that which... was the, um, the CLA's rapid clearance service that they used to operate um, is sort of in the, the 90s, I think, and up until the time mm. of the Copyright Tribunal in around 2000 when um, uh, Sol's sort of focusing on that as well. Yeah. But it was a kind of way that you could get permission um, for course packs and later it was used for digital copying yeah. as well. But it proved to be difficult, mm. expensive, mm. And, and that was part of the referral to the Copyright Tribunal. Yeah, um, yeah. We also mentioned List CopySeq, which is a mailing list uh, which we are the list owners of. Yep, it's a disc UK. mail list. It's a closed list. Mm-hmm. Um, has over 500 people, I think, who are actually um, 
on that list and it's a kind of the place to go to ask questions related to copyright if you're trying to get permission for something or if you're trying to understand when you might be able to use educational exceptions and, and, and things like that it's primarily in higher education uh, in mm. the uk but not exclusively so there are some other interesting things in there yeah um, so i think that was really what we wanted to say at the beginning yep um, i think so and we were very pleased that sol agreed to talk to us um, so I think we're, we're going to hand over to ourselves back in April in a slightly echoier room than we're talking in now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming in to see us, Sol. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's nice to come back to these uh, hallowed halls <laughs> <laughs> and to talk copyright. Yes. And to talk copyright. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah I'm I'm particularly interested as well to, to chat to you, Sol, because. Uh, and we'll come back to this later, that the article that you wrote on the history of what happened um, in the UK around educational licensing was one of the key things that I, I was looking at when I was doing my recent master's research into you know, what's happening at the moment. So, excellent opportunity to chat. Yes. Well, I'm very glad it was helpful to you. Yes. <laughs> so, what the, one thing we, we, we always start with is really asking people what their copyright history is. So, how did, how did you get into copyright in the first place? Well, for me, it is mainly history in that uh, now I'm less involved uh, with copyright. I have other things to keep me busy. Mm. Um, but uh, it goes back really quite a long way, really, for, with my first job. My first job uh, was uh, teaching in Africa, in fact, at what was then the University College Dar es Salaam. It started mm. as a... Um, a college of the University of London. Mm. Oh, wow. you know, the old wow. University of London external degree system. Yes. But they yeah. then moved on and kind of had a, I guess if it was effectively now a lot of universities have, it's a kind of, but it's not really an overseas campus. It was a campus uh, set up a separate university, a university college. Um, uh, but it gave initially, just for the first two, three years, I think, uh, University of London degrees. Uh, but that was my first job. I was recruited um, from America. I'd gone to law school in America after the UK um, and recruited by William Twining, who was uh, then, um, he was at the time visiting Chicago, where I was as a graduate student, uh, but he um, had already been recruited to University College of Dar es Salaam, and it was just starting up. He'd formerly been in the Sudan. And it was starting up with a law school, so I was very lucky to get that job. Very yeah, excited. yeah. What an exciting place to go as well. It was a very great, um, politically very interesting post-independence and so yes. on. Yes. Mm. Uh, but also, you know, I mean, I wasn't sure about being an academic, but uh, in that context, uh, setting up a new uh, department, law department, but also a new uh, university, effectively, was really very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you kind of then kind of get get involved? I well, mean, was it what was how was copyright having an impact on you? <laughs> Obviously, it came from the teaching side. In that, uh, for the first year or two, setting up the university basically meant setting up a library. Oh. And so we arrived after they'd got the library there. Uh, in fact, I wasn't there amongst the first group. As I say, William Twining was already there. Uh, a guy called Jim Reed, who's from uh, South London, and um, Patrick McCausland who was at LSE. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so they were the first teachers. I arrived um, just after the uh, uh, 
uh, with I think with the third entry, third group of students. Uh, but we had a library and we had not a large number of students, I think there were about 40, 50 students, uh, but obviously the problem was um, teaching the students with really only this library. First, obviously, there weren't really any books on local law. We were teaching mm. students from all over East Africa because mm. it was the only law faculty in East Africa. So although I think about half were from uh, uh, what was initially Tanganyika, it then became the United Republic of Tanzania. Um, half of them were f- from there, but the others came from Kenya, Uganda, a few from Malawi. Wow. Um, uh, so, uh, obviously, the problem was uh, teaching materials for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, some of us, uh, I had been, and as I say, William had been at uh, law school in America, um, and the American law schools had already started uh, teaching through what they call cases and materials books. So they uh, produced compilations... Um, of extracts, but mainly of primary materials, because with lawyers, uh, the important thing, especially in the American legal tradition, which come from the what they call the realist legal tradition, where the important thing was what the judges said and what the actual judgments, court judgments said, yeah. um, was to get the students into reading those primary materials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, uh, obviously, uh, uh, explanatory material, some secondary sources, uh, so a lot of the American law schools had already started in the 50s. I think, I'm not sure when it started there, but certainly when I was a student in, in, in the States in the early 60s, uh, that was very popular, cases mm. and materials, which were prepared by the teachers. Then obviously, since they had so many students, um, uh, publishers then did start publishing those cases and materials books in America. They had whopping great uh, books which the law students might buy, but a mm. lot of them were produced kind of in-house by the university. Mm, mm. Uh, so for us, that was a way to go in Africa. So where did um, they source those cases from? Were they published by the courts, the primary materials? Yeah, the primary materials. Uh, well, not necessarily. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I, don't, I never went into American corporate, but obviously uh, the US having a much broader fair use doctrine mm. didn't matter so much. Okay. No, no. I mean, I then had to research a lot more. We'll get to the problem in the UK once I got back to the UK. Yeah. Mm. Um, but in the US, with the broad fair use doctrine, it didn't much matter. Mm. Okay. Um, but in, in Africa, uh, we didn't really think much about copyright, to be frank. No, we, we no. had uh, We had uh, not a bad library, quite a well-resourced library, but obviously with only one copy of everything, and mm. even just 40, 50 students. Mm. Yeah, and uh, the emphasis was on getting the students to read the actual stuff and discuss it in seminars. Yeah. So really. So you needed uh, to make multiple copies, really. You needed to make multiple copies. Yeah. Now yeah. in those days, this was even before the Ronio. Well, no, we used the old Ronio system. I don't know if people remember them, <laughs> where we had where you had to type stencils. Right. Was how you made copies. It was so this pre photocopies. Yeah. Yeah. Well before digital pre photocopying. Yeah. Uh, but we had some fantastic typists. I remember one wonderful typist called Mohammed who would sit in, in the law school office and type at an incredible rate. He could wow. do copy typing. Uh, so we would give them extracts from the... And they were re and all that. They were re they would, they would type up these Ronios mm. and, uh, and make copies, multiple copies. Wow. Um, so we, we uh, basically prepared these... Uh, materials for the students to, to read and compile them into packages yeah. um, which really really made it obviously much easier to give the students a decent education mm. but as mm. I say at that stage it wasn't so much copyright 
uh, course packs. Yeah. I'm not sure we called them course packs then, but that's effectively what they were. What they were. And when I got back to the UK, I was there four years, uh, got back to the UK in the late 60s, and then uh, again I was in a new uh, university, Warwick, mm. uh, in a new law school. I was there again with the first students this time. Um, and uh, we, we started doing a similar thing then. Mm. Also because a new, a new law faculty and teachers wanted to strike out a bit. It was Warwick was specifically founded to try and be a bit different to, to mm. teach what we call law in context. Okay. Um, and not necessarily following this, the, the old categorizations of legal subjects. Um, so we had courses on consumer law, for example, commercial right. law. Right. Um, so that meant that the published textbooks, for a number of reasons, wouldn't be suitable. They might, yeah. You know, they, you might want. I don't think there were books on consumer law then. It wasn't regarded as a you know. Then you had contract tort property, yeah, just yeah. a basic legal subject. Um, but also because uh, we didn't want the students just to read a textbook. We wanted them to read the actual primary sources. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. So we started producing these uh, um, uh, cases and materials in the same kind of way. And by that time, obviously, by the seventies. Uh, photocopying, it was photocopying. Mm. Yeah. So we did a lot of cutting and pasting and preparing these packages. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And that, uh, that went on until then the copyright issue blew up uh, probably uh, the end of the 70s. Right, right, right. Um, with the, the, Whitford, the Whitford Committee report, I think, was probably the, the yeah. turning point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where uh, Whitford, the Whitford Committee then looked into the issue. Um, and recommended a system of copyright licensing. Was brought in, yeah, yeah. Uh, but although that was recommended in the Whitford report in '77, it took, uh, well, as you know, until '88 for the legislation to mm. be finalised. So mm. that, that's what I go through in the article you kind of referred to, Chris, mm. uh, eventually published in the European Intellectual Property Review, review yeah. mm. um, EIPR. Um, <coughs> So people can go through go through that, uh, but there is a background to that. I mean, that article kind of lays out the the, the shift from the uh, the Whitford report. I think seventy seven was it. Yeah. Uh, then there was a green paper and a white paper. Uh, copyright licensing agency, the CLA that you all know and love yes. now, yeah. uh, was set up then in the early eighties. Um, an attempt to they attempted to issue kind of more or less a unilater- unilateral license, mm, mm. Uh, but in the meantime we were doing what we understood was was acceptable, and at that time was I mean at that time uh, the law had a fairly broad fair dealing provision right, uh, for, right. for research and private study. So did you start to get involved um, in thinking that you might? You know, be kind of shaping some of how the the license would develop in in well, at it that point. Well, at or? that point, we didn't think we needed a license. Right. Our view was yeah. that uh, I mean, obviously, British uh, universities were a bit better resourced than the African ones. Yeah. Uh, so we had several copies of law reports. So yeah. That we would have probably three, four, five. So you were purchasing the content. Uh, still. So we were purchasing the content, but yeah. even so, we had larger classes. Um, and if you want the students not only to read before the class, but often, you know, we put the emphasis on actually discussing the material in the seminar. Yeah. We still had seminars. And I yeah. think 
they're less frequent now I think Yeah. but the important thing was to be able with the student in a seminar to say what is the judge saying here what's he yeah. saying there yeah. or even, in, even with secondary material what's this learning author you know what is the central concept so to have the material in front of the students during a seminar yeah, yeah. was essential yeah. um, um, and uh, unlike America where as I say the tenure for law schools case and materials had come in that hadn't started so much but although increasingly I think some publishers did start producing little case and materials books but they tended to be much slimmer um, with only rather short extracts. Right, right. But for a lawyer, it's important to read the whole of a court judgment. Yeah, um, yeah. So that they can digest it, not just to have a few selected paragraphs. Uh, yeah, picked yeah, out. yeah. Um, so was your involvement at that stage in copyright was because you were producing these compilation texts, were you actually teaching copyright at the same time or were you looking at other aspects of law? <coughs> no, I, I wasn't... <laughs> I, I was an international lawyer, so mm. my background was public international law, but I got mm. interested in uh, international economic and business law. Okay. Uh, so I, st- I kind of came edgewise into a lot of areas of commercial and business law mm. without necessarily having studied it. In fact, I don't think intellectual property law wasn't... I don't think it wasn't offered. Certainly no, not no. at Oxford. I did my first degree at Oxford. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of Roman law there. <laughs> <laughs> the intellectual property wasn't there wasn't offered. No, no. So it wasn't. A, I didn't know much about it. Um, but it, it it started to come in. I mean, it, I I did then include a, a, a module in my international business course. Okay. On international intellectual property law because yeah, that was yeah. important from for issues like patents and so on in those mm. days probably copyright a bit less so so I came into the area and got interested in copyright law indirectly then. Mm. but probably my first contact was as I say when we started to run into uh, issues about how our teaching practices producing these cases and materials books uh, was uh, 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 impinging on the on the publisher's views about mm. what, what mm. copyright was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Mm. As I say, we were operating under the old, the pre-1988 law, which had a fair dealing provision for fair, uh, for fair dealing for research and private study. Mm. Mm. Uh, so our view was that this is essentially the students, but we were just saving the students uh, the, the time and trouble of making their own photocopies rather than producing a reading list where the students could go off and copy stuff, yeah, yeah. we would just produce packs. And, yeah. and, and also the packs were uh, supplementary. I mean, uh, we didn't dispense with textbooks. We just didn't want the students just to only read a textbook. Mm, so mm. normally you would prescribe a textbook if one was available in the subject. Mm. Um, and then uh, the cases and materials would be supplementary to that. So how did that all change then after 1988 when the, the, the acts well, came in? Well, probably before you jump to 88, yeah. I think the interesting period is 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 the 80s because, okay. as I say, there was 10 or 11 years between the Whitford Report and the 88 Act. Yeah. And in that period, we were still uh, operating in the shadow, as, uh, as we say, of this legal provision where we said 
research and private study is fine. Mm. The publishers were kind of ambivalent about it. And right. some of the more probably hardline publishers will say, well, no, if you make multiple copies for students, mm. that's not private study. Mm, mm. I mean, I'm making, I'm kind of clarifying it, but when you're operating in the shadow of a law, it's a lot murkier than that. So, yes. You know, yeah, it's never yeah. very clear. Yeah. We, we, but basically we said what we were doing was not, it wasn't depriving the publishers of any income mm. because... I mean, we were copying mostly court reports. Mm. And then I did start to look into the copyright issue. I, I wrote an article, in fact, one of my first was with a colleague. We wrote an article about copyright in court judgments. Yeah. Oh. Because I don't know if you've read that one. No, um, I haven't. That was, an, that was, that was an in, once we got into it, it was a very interesting area because, as you know, copyright in here is in the author, yeah. and the author of a judgment is the judge. So then the question is whether whether a judge being employed by the Crown, whether it's the judge's personal copyright or yeah. whether it's Crown copyright, and the relationship between that and uh, uh, whatever, if, if, the, if the judgment then is published by a commercial a publisher, mm. um, <coughs> uh, what the relationship of copyrights uh, are then. Um, and we, we looked at it because the, the issue then was whether, uh, in fact, the, a claim was made by the shorthand writers because okay. judges often would give a judgment sex temporary even if they kind of had a written judgment they would read it mm-hmm. and so but we had to do the research to find this out uh, how how did court judgments were were produced so mm-hmm. that's looking back at the principle in Walter and Lane back at the end Goes of the back to Walter century, and Lane absolutely is the fact that so a public speech someone might read it out but in that case the reporters were writing it down and, right. and they were writing effectively verbatim yeah. but because of the way the UK copyright law works it's about this labor skill and judgment yeah, yeah. so the fact is even though they were effectively just transcribing yeah. what Lord Rosebery, I think it was, was saying, they 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 got copyright in the, the in actual what they reporters wrote down. owned copyright. Mm. In well, that was a newspaper, wasn't it? Yes, but that was a newspaper, the Times newspaper, as I remember, in Walter and Lane. Mm. Uh, but obviously, it's the same principle here. Mm. The question was whether they, uh, whether the shorthand writers in the courts owned the copyright in the in the written version of the judgment. Or not, and we did a bit of research and found that, it, in fact, the judges usually were supplied with the court court hand, the shorthand writer's transcript, and they would correct it. So we said that it was the judges that mm. had the copyright. I mean, it seems to make it seems to be crazy that, that the judge wouldn't own copyright, and also yeah. from today's perspective, that that shouldn't. That, should that not just simply be clearly a public document mm. that, that, should that, that should be available for mm. anyone to look at? And does that, you know, any kind of commercial um, kind of calling that if off? It's, if it is, is Crown copyright, then wouldn't it be under the Open Government uh, Licence? Well, it would now, yeah. but in those days, yeah. again, Crown copyright was a murky area. Yes, of course. Uh, so the issues were, A, was it Crown copyright? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, was it the shorthand reporters or the judges? If it was the judges, was it the judges or Crown? And yeah. so did it come under the Crown copyright procedure? But in any case, we kind of caught short-circuited it because then the main series of law reports was published by the Incorporated Council for Law Reporting for England and Wales. Okay. And they are a kind of uh, charity and... Uh, so basically, we could go straight to them and say, you know, uh, 
are you willing to allow us to make copies? And, mm. and they, they said effectively yes, initially. Mm. It was only subsequently when licensing came in that they then became a bit more ambivalent about okay. whether they wanted the licensing stream to cover yeah. their cost. But at that stage, uh, they they had public objects. That their aim was to make law reports available, widely available. So... Uh, it was hard, they couldn't really, you know, in fact, they were happy, I think, to allow uh, copies to be made for educational purposes. Yeah, yeah. But also other publishers, uh, I mean, as I say, I was teaching an international business course, um, and the bulk of the material was either primary sources, probably in the international area, not so much court judgments, there were some, but also uh, stuff from international organisations, United mm. Nations, and mm. a lot of those would actually sometimes put on their publication that it was freely, you could make copies. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and treaties and that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, so secondary material was fairly, you know, probably not that much. Um, <clears throat> uh, but we then, where necessary, started to ask for permissions from those, from the, from directly from the publishers. And as right. I say, publishers varied in that. Um, uh, we had we had a, a good relation with one particular publisher. I think it was Hugh Jones at Sweet and Maxwell, a law publisher. Yeah. Um, and on 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 their behalf, um, uh, he was happy to let us make co- copies for educational purposes. And you didn't have to pay um, fees for no, that. No, we're not paying. We're not, yeah, yeah. You know, we just asked for. And but it, that was partly because, as I say, the licensing hadn't really got going much. Uh, the CLA was set up, I think, nineteen eighty two, was it? And they initially tried around that time, but there was—I well, think there was a division of opinion between the publishers who, t- who were, you know, as I say. I mean, it depended whether they saw their primary source of revenues as being libraries and so on, mm. which is obviously, if if they accepted secondary uses, like. But uh, other publishers, who maybe were looking more at, at uh, selling directly to students and mm. so on. Mm. Uh, were more protective of the market, and they then took a very, really a very restrictive view. Not only that they wouldn't allow, but if they wanted, if they were going to license, basically the price they would charge for the license would be the equivalent of what it would cost if you bought it as a book. Yeah, yeah. So they said that it would it should be on a on a per page per copy per page basis. Yeah. Based on the equivalent cost of a printed book, wow. <laughs> which was an incredible. But rare. it does. It shows that some of the discussions that go on now around, you know, how e-books and textbooks are licensed are, are kind of. It's the same argument it's still being. Simple. Yeah, because basically, yeah. once I started to understand it, I could. I understood it better. I think that basically. Copyright is a monopoly. It's a protection of a monopoly mm. situation, mm. and monopolists like to wring the most they can out of whatever rights they've got, mm. and they therefore act really as a as a as a hindrance on the development of new technologies or new methodologies or new mm. business models. Because obviously, I mean, it, it was I mean, it, it was really ridiculous for them to claim that. Mm. I mean, it was to the point. The first copyright license that the CLA offered. Uh, you had to actually license each individual photocopier. So there was a fee, for, fee per photocopier. Oh, wow. And the fee, as I say, was on a per copy per page basis. Yeah. So, I mean, and they offered it unilaterally, and I don't know who they thought would take it up. Yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah. if, uh, I can't remember now if a few places did take it up. 
basically because they were being threatened with lawsuits. So some, some universities were taking it out? I can't remember if a few did, but uh, yeah. it was not, I mean, it was not really a feasible licensing model at all. Was, no. I remember uh, it kind of, because I had a friend who went to uh, Ethiopia at the time, and he told me when in Ethiopia the photocopiers were guarded by a, by a member of the military. <laughs> you couldn't... You couldn't <laughs> really? Be, uh, and, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that British publishers were as stringent as that, but basically yeah. they were hindering the use of photocopiers. Yes. And when they tried to make that argument um, following Whit- Whitford, was a bit vague. Whitford supported the idea of, of blanket licensing, but kind of left it fairly vague. Yeah. And then the government produced a green paper, and I think the pub- some publishers tried to push this idea of quite restrictive licensing idea, and the Green Paper really rejected that and right. accepted that you couldn't restrict photocopying. It was a ubiquitous technology. Yes, yeah. It, you know, they didn't want to be in the same position as the military government of Ethiopia. No, no. Armed or a guard checking off every every photocopy you made, which was have been the equivalent of what, wow. what, they, were, what they were looking for. Um, so it's, during the 80s, there was kind of guerrilla warfare, if you like, or mm. legal, legal, the equivalent of legal guerrilla warfare, which, yeah. which actually hit home to... It's actually Warwick and Kent, because Warwick and Kent both had innovative law schools, maybe. Right. Um, so we got hit with, uh, uh, with legal threats. In fact, it was one of my own uh, course packs that was picked up, I think, by publishers. Oh, okay. publisher, you know, publishers come round and visit the academics. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think uh, uh, the publisher just... I just used to leave the course packs outside my office door for students to pick up their copies mm, for the next mm. week's teaching. You know? yeah. So I think he must have sneaked one away. <gasps> Ironically, it was one about international intellectual property. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite amazing. <laughs> and the bulk of it, as I say, the bulk of it was secondary materials, extract from treaties and this and that. And yeah, it had a yeah. few uh, primary material, it had a few secondary materials, including an article from the EIPR, European Intellectual Property Review, about the patent, uh, the Paris, nego- Paris Treaty negotiations or something. Uh, but anyway, he picked that up, took it back to, I think at that time, it was, I can't remember if it was the CLA by then, or the Publishers Licensing Society. Mm. Uh, but they, they wrote a legal letter to the university. Our university then got uh, legal advice, but I worked with the solicitor. They got uh, one of the city law firms. Um, and obviously, if they want to make a legal threat, they have to do it on the behalf of a copyright owner. Mm. Yes, mm. Licensing Society... In those days, they didn't mm. have mandates. No, no. So they had to produce the owner. Right. So in the meantime, we contact, We went through the package they'd got, saw that there was only two or three items where we needed right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, one was the IPR, and I contacted a very nice guy in Oxford who used to, I don't know if he still publishes it. Yeah. But he said, no, I, don't know, I, I, you know, I would want university students to read my journal. He accepted our argument that university students are never going to subscribe. No, no. And uh, they might, but if you want 25 students to read it for next week's seminar, they're not going to be able to read it no, in the no. library all at once. So, so he said no. So so basically the, the threat from the publishers evaporated. They couldn't mm. really make it stand. And I looked into it, because I know you mentioned Kent in Kent the article also. as well, and I actually went and spoke to my 
colleague, our, our archivist, to see if he could dig some stuff out for me, and he very kindly had a look, and I actually have had a look at some of the... I didn't find the copy of the letter, but I did find some quite interesting stuff did you? within oh, the archive about conversations about copying, and it might have been... It was probably sort of 86, oh, 87 right. sort of time, right. and, and, and the discussions it's there. Probably, yeah. So, yeah. Perhaps the two of you can collaborate on writing <laughs> this up. <isn't> the <laughs> Warwick Kent's great copyright scandal or something. Well, it wasn't a scandal. <laughs> no, no, it's just... It's, no, it's really it's, interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it's those issues being discussed and, uh, you know, for, for my you know, colleagues who were there at the time, must be taking it very seriously. And, mm. you know, it's, as we all know, copyright, when you start actually looking into it, talk about ownership and mm. all those different works, and like you say, that sort of chain of title, working out who the owner is, it's uh, complicated. But it's, uh, mm. Partly who the owner is, but also what is it that they want to control? And mm. uh, if you want to control diffusion, I mean, from a legal point of view, it's a very elastic view of copyright. Uh, because it means that you will want to control every new technological means of dissemination. Mm. Now, if mm. you let if you let the owners that rely on an income stream from the previous technology control new forms of dissemination, that's obviously going to be extremely damaging economically and mm. educationally and, and in lots of ways. Mm. So the idea that, uh, that the controllers of the old print technology... Uh, should control the use made of photocopying. Mm. Uh, you know, I didn't. You know, it was really a bit laughable. I think, mm. Uh, mm. but still, I think because the the idea of property rights is so strong. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's on. They're on weak ground there because yeah. copyright's supposed to be author's rights. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. And so you did have to look to, as I say, what we did with court reports was to say well, who are the authors. Yeah. And it certainly wasn't the publishers who owned that. It was either the judges or the maybe maybe the the uh, shorthand reporters or whoever. You know. It's not... And it's it's similar to the discussions around open access, where the authors in the vast majority of cases are academics working in universities, aren't That's they? Right. So, That's right. Yeah. So if, if they paid more attention to their to, to their rights and, and to their interest in dissemination mm. as opposed to... I mean, obviously, you've got to balance the interest in revenue with the interest in dissemination, but mm. certainly for an academic, the interest mm. in dissemination is far stronger mm. uh, than the interest in a revenue source. Mm. But you also, even for the revenue source, you've got to think a bit more dynamically because once these uh, digital giants came in, I mean, Google was initially, at any rate, uh, one of the biggest forces for open access mm. when, when they started to develop the uh, Google Library and so on. Mm. Mm. Uh, their view was, you know, knowledge should be free and available and they were going to create a repository of all the... All, all the, the books in the world. All the books in the world and yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So... You know, as I say, it's the controllers of the old technology that tend to take this very conservative view. Mm, but yeah. back then, so in, in leading up to the 1988 Act, you've got these individual permissions which are extremely uh, restrictive, and then you've got this the CLA do promulgate a licence which is then backed up by the 1988 Act and what it says. So at that early stage, was that, was that licence fit for purpose or did it need you know have we, I guess what I'm getting at is have we kind of reached in your view a, a, a sort of moment of relative stability around the use of that material <laughs> or you know or, or at the time was it you know I think we've stuttered from one 
more or less stable position to another. I mean, <laughs> the, it's true the 88 Act created a new basis, which was the revised version of Section 29.3, which uh, then clarified the issue of multiple copies. Mm. where we mm. had that de- de- debate in the 80s was whether if you made copies for a number of students, mm. and 29.3 made it clear not. No. It made it clear that if you're uh, making multiple copies... Uh, then you needed uh, permission. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so that, students that had to make their own copies. They either had to make their own copies, yeah. or if you were making copies for them, then it had to be uh, on a permission basis. Right. And that gave the CLA the basis, and they did then negotiate. I mean, I wasn't involved then in negotiating the licences, uh, but the, that then created a basis. So the first licence, the first licence, I think, wasn't too bad. It, from a user's point of view, it, it d- didn't really uh, mm. um, uh, prevent us. In a way, it was welcome because it was a blanket licence mm. and the university paid the fee so we yes. could carry on. It was really when then the CLA brought in the restriction on course backs right. when it became right. dysfunctional. And so that's when you got involved in it well, much more not directly? immediately. Initially, we were just very unhappy with it. Right. Uh, because it introduced this, this restriction. That, uh, and then they ha- we focused on the definition of a course pack. Yes, yeah. Um, and it was, I think, if you had more than three items... Right. ..for which you needed permission. Yeah. So... <laughs> I mean, we. Did, I have to. I think I can confess this now. We found various legal ways of avoiding trying to get around this by, instead of producing one pack for the whole, the whole term, yeah. we would produce a, a, a different pack each. Two with weeks, just a small number of readings. With a fewer number. So as long <laughs> as it was under the three or four that you needed permission for. Yeah. Uh, then that was. Yeah. We said that wasn't a course pack. But obviously, the course pack restriction was really... Yeah. Uh, because you then had to ask individual permissions, and they were then asking not only that, but they went back to their per copy per page yes. rate, yeah. uh, which was really... And then, is that when uh, they set up like the... Five P on, the no, I think it was like 5P. No, I think 10P. Or did that come in later? That, that then to... came in later, where they yeah. then tried to facilitate that, but even going through Clark's was a terrible palaver. I mean, yes. it, it was yeah. trouble enough producing these course packs, Mm. Uh, but for a, a teacher, you know, to put all that time, and that was obviously in a period when, I mean, in the in the seventies and early eighties, uh, universities were reasonably well funded. But, yeah. but by that time, staff-student ratios were going up, teaching pressures and teaching loads going up. Yeah. So we had less time to to do the kind of uh, that kind of work, and mm. so and we had even less. We had no real secretarial support or anything like that. So. Mm. Mm. so the Clark system really was unworkable. So we were getting fairly unhappy. And then on top of that, um, uh, the CLA then in- introduced the f- this further restriction about illustrations. Right, OK. And that was when... Um, so that was images and illustrations that were within books? That's right. They yeah. had, a, they had a, an exclusion in the, in the licence, uh, which was a bit unclear about what it covered or didn't cover, uh, but I think the problem was they didn't have a mandate from the uh, DAX, mm. the, the uh, design artists and whatever copyright, copyright society. Yeah. Um, so uh, once they got in on the act, CLA then uh, withdrew permission unilaterally for uh, illustrations right. and offered a supplementary license to universities for that. Um, and this was the last straw. And, 
David Anderson Evans, who was still is, <laughs> and I hope you'll interview him as well. Yes. He can oh, tell yes. you all about that. Well. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I heard that he memorably walked out of a meeting with CLA and said, that's enough. Um, so then uh, that was when I came on board oh. with the, with the uh, copyright negotiating group. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, David obviously had been aware. I think I'd written to him and said, you know, this Clark system and the course paths isn't really working for us. And so, yeah. so he was very aware of that. And when the illustrations thing was on, was put on top, he, he said, OK, we've got to do something about this. So I came in and we then consulted lawyers. And we went to a city firm, I think it was Baker McKenzie, I kind of thought that we'd just get a high-powered city firm and they would lay out the issues and yeah. we'd have a negotiation with the CLA and sort something out and get yeah, a better yeah. licence direct from the CLA. But I was kind of surprised uh, that uh, Baker McKenzie, despite their... You know, I mean, they know the stuff. Uh, but they said, no, we've got to go and get QC's opinion. So we went to QC and uh, Gray's Inn, I think it was, and... Uh, and you know, we hadn't really explained very much about it. I think there may have been, a, obviously, a brief from the solicitor. The QC said, take me to the tribunal. My experience is you'll never get rights owners to see sense unless you make bring out the heavy guns and, and take it to... At least, I, I think he, he made it fairly clear he thought it would go to the tribunal. Again, yeah. I thought we could negotiate. And yeah, we, yeah. We were hoping yeah. we'd negotiate. Yes. And we did try. We tried uh, through the uh, through the academic uh, publishers, a yeah. little group of academic publishers. We tried to talk to them to try and get some sense and say, can't we settle this with better licence, you know? Uh, but in fact, the QC had turned out to be right. Mm. There's no way. So this was when, this was 2000, was it? 2001. It was 99 to 2000. Yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah. I can date. It was I pretty much date, when I started. I can date the tribunal the hearing rather sadly because the actual hearing of the tribunal took place. In fact, the my I gave evidence. I was one of our witnesses as a an, a teacher preparing course back. Yes. Um, and I gave my evidence, and on my way home on the tube, I saw people looking really shattered, and that was 9-11. Oh. oh. So you can date it. The actual date of the tribunal hearing was, was um, oh, wow. 11th, oh. of, 11th of November. Yeah. Well, it was that week. It took, in, in the end, took, uh, I think it was the best part of a week yeah. of, of hearings. So it was a full-fledged, although it's a tribunal, it was a full-fledged court with QCs on both sides, and... Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but we got pretty much what we wanted out of the tribunal. I think the tribunal really was an excellent judgment. So that provided a, a new basis, a new basis for stability, I think. But in that period, uh, the late 90s, probably from when they introduced the course back exception and tried with Clarks, yeah. from the mid-90s uh, through to... Um, uh, the tribunal decision 2001 mm, mm. Uh, was the most difficult time from a teaching point of view. Mm, mm. Yeah, that was when I started working at UCL and mm. they had a big service that they were using clerks to get permission for course packs and they introduced, well, I went there to work on a project to look at digital course packs and what we Already could do. Yeah, yeah, the very... Ex- the clerks is transactional licensing. Yes. It's going through and getting those individual yeah. permissions. And that was what the tribunal was said, wasn't it? That it, it, it said was, it's not a proper blanket licence. It said yeah. quite rightly. And every time some public body like Whitford or the Green Paper, the White Paper, and then uh, 
the tribunal, when they've looked at it, they've said fairly clearly, licensing can only work if it's a proper blanket license. Yeah. Uh, you know, on a basis that essentially you're paying a tax. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is what it is. But if you take a private property point of view, and you you do get in this position where essentially the controllers of the old technology are dogs in the manger and restricting the, the uh, you know the new methods of dissemination offered by a new type of technology, which mm. isn't the function of copyright. No. I no. mean, in fact, the the evidence I gave. I remember the CLA's QC tried to make me out to be a. a you know, uh, not non-believer in any kind of of, uh, of copyright or protection. I said, no, I'm an author too. Yeah. I don't mind getting some royalties, but uh, I'm also interested in dissemination. As yes. an author, yeah. I want my work to be read by a lot of people. Yeah. And I don't want to impose restrictive, over restrict, overly strict uh, restrictions on on how my, once I've once I've sold a book, I want the book to be read. Yeah. And I don't mind it being copied. No, you know, if uh, I can get a secondary income stream, fine, but that yeah. should be a secondary income stream and it should be on the basis of some proper blanket loss. Yeah. So one interesting point that I picked up um, in, in, in sort of at the end of your the article you wrote on this in the EIPR is about the public versus private interests and, and whether or not um, it's a good idea to have educational copying being subject to a private negotiation. So we're effectively on this group, Jane and I are on this group, mm. that negotiates these licences. Uh, but they are, you know, a group of autonomous institutions negotiating privately with a commercial entity rather than it being something which is you know, copying for the public interest should this not be done in a different way. So I don't know whether you can... Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that. really when you say, how do I get into copyright? It was through being at the sharp end in that way. Um, so I then got into it from a more academic point of view. Mm. And I always get more interest as an academic if I can see the utility, if you like. Mm. Mm. But that did seem to me to be... So I read a lot of very interesting stuff about copyright. Mm. Because <clears throat> from an economic point of view, there's always been an ambivalence about intellectual property. In fact, libertarian economists or kind of free market economists historically we're quite anti-intellectual property because of this market restriction mm. effect of intellectual property. Um, so there was a big copyright, uh, there have been big disputes about uh, intellectual property patents as well as copyright historically um, <coughs> uh, because there is that tension in it mm. uh, uh, to treat uh, uh, these issues as simply a matter of private property is against the public interest, but it's also against, in a way, it's against the private interest too, as I say, because um, it, 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 it's a very short-term view, if you like. Mm. I'm talking the manger view. Uh, it's a very short-term view, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you need to take a longer-term view um, in order to unlock, if you like, uh, uh, human potential and, and creativity, which is, after all, what copyright is supposed to be protecting. Mm. Um, mm. So there's always that balance. So mm. on the licensing aspect, that's what the article tries to bring out, is that, is that uh, really, how should this be managed? <clears throat> now, you could do it by rethinking the nature of the private right, no longer as a, a property right. A property right is a right to exclude 
and that obviously is very restrictive because it, it, it is a dog in the major position. Mm-hmm. Um, and some uh, 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 some writers on, on the issue from an economic point of view have argued that it should be a right to remuneration, that if you recast it, not as a property right, but a right to remuneration, that would mean that you would have a right to make copies or whatever, uh, but then uh, anyone who claimed... Uh, 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 copyright could then ask for reasonable remuneration. Mm. And that was the principle that the Whitford Committee came up with that said that copying in an educational context should be subject to remuneration, not prohibition. Mm. Yeah. Um, but they had to do that by really, you know, because of the peculiarity of the way our copyright law is, it's not mm. clearly stated there. So it, uh, on the one hand, it does protect the you know, 1988 Act, does give copyright property right, an exclusive right. Yeah. It was given yeah. an exclusive right. Yeah. It then has exceptions, as you know. That's what you work with all the time. Yeah. So yeah. it has all the fair dealing exceptions and it has the licensing exceptions. And what Whitford and so on said was that there should be a right to use until such time as a licence is available. Right. But that was always the fight over what should the right to use be. Mm. And the 88 Act, where it was probably defective, was it only gave you a right to make 1%, to copy 1%. Mm. A quarter as well. Yeah. So it wasn't even... It was in a yeah. very restrictive... So if it had been broader, and that's where the US situation with fair use was probably better from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, it worked out differently for different reasons. Um, but always copyright licensing has operated in this in the shadow of what is allowed and not allowed, yeah. public and what is private, what is fair dealing, what is exclusive rights and so on. Mm. And that's interesting, actually, because that's mm. kind of what we're seeing with the sort of reformatting of Section 32 and illustration for instruction, that people are really unclear, aren't they, that how, how does that... You know what? Do, what can they now do? There, some of them are operating in the shadows. Maybe thinking, well, I think this might be acceptable. But perhaps. Well, yes, I suppose. I mean, this is not to talk about my research. No, I wasn't going to, but I do. I think it, there's a lot of parallels. I think what it is is that the the the, the changes to the law from five years ago uh, in this country have come in against the backdrop of something which is inherently shadowy anyway. Yeah. Despite the fact that you have this. Severus license agreements, those fundamental tensions are always there. Mm. Any change to them, whether that be change because new technology is available or a change mm. because the law has been tweaked to allow more flexibility, it's very difficult to predict what people are actually going to do mm. on the basis that that, that flexibility is there mm. because it's a contested area anyway. If you, if you have fair dealing in there, then mm. what's, what's fair to one person is not necessarily going to be fair to another. Mm. And and that was fed into my research interest in law because that's how a lot of areas of law work. People tend to think that that the law is clear and you just simply abide by it. Mm. And if it's not clear, it's because it's not worded well enough. Mm. In practice, that's not the case at all. Legal principles are usually fairly general principles um, because they have to anticipate lots of different potentialities. Mm. Um, And most, most social and economic activities take place uh, as socio-legal scholars have pointed out, in the shadow of the law. Mm. So you have mm. these general principles, mm. like a principle of fair dealing, mm. and then 
activity goes on in the shadow of that. So mm. there's always a process of negotiating interpretations of the law. Mm. And that, in a way, then uh, creates the meaning of the law. The meaning of the law develops in that way, either through interpretation of what is fair dealing, mm. um, <clears throat> or then by pushing at the boundary, you then get reforms of the law. So mm. where we had the, the debate about what is private research and private study, um, there was that debate and conflicts in the 80s, and then it was clarified by 29.3, mm. uh, multiple copying. But even that was, you know, negotiable. So mm. there's always that dynamic of, of uh, activities taking place in the shadow of the law. And mm. So in a way, legal ambiguity is part of the whole process. Mm. Mm. And probably the thing that lots of people <coughs> struggle with, certainly lots of people in the library world mm. struggle with that ambiguity. <laughs> they want it to be... They want it to be clear, but yeah. they think it, it kind of helps, but it also means you have. Uh, that's, but as you know, on this copy seat, that's yes. what we spend a lot of our time doing is saying, well, this is an area where it's basically risk management. You yes. have to decide how much yeah. appetite for risk you've got or not. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But also, it's very important in the public sector uh, to defend our space. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, to defend our interpretation and to be willing to do that. Mm. And the more I looked at the at other examples of a copyright licensing, the history of copyright licensing, the clearer that became. That really, mm. it, it was always, it, it was, there were always legal battles and always fights over what the meaning of, of different laws should be. And mm. uh, sometimes competition law comes into it because mon monopoly, rules on monopoly and competition override to some extent or can override intellectual property. Mm. or interact with the intellectual property. Uh, so from an academic point, a legal point of view, it was very interesting. Mm. So as I say, the, uh, the tribunal, uh, and Jane obviously came in at that kind of stage, so we'll know about this too, uh, the tribunal provided this new basis. Uh, so I think in the first few licences, well, we got a five-year licence. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. The next phase was the new technology of digitalisation. Yes, that's when I got involved uh, in about 2006, I think, yeah. Uh, and there the issue was, so we got kind of got photocopying more or less okay, yeah. uh, but digitalisation came in, um, and the issue then was whether we needed it at all, because obviously a lot of digital materials made available on primary licence. Mm, mm, um, mm. And the issue then was whether we needed it at all, whether there was a role for the, uh, the reprographic rights organisations like the CLA, which in a sense are intermediaries between uh, the publishers. Mm. And there's layers of intermediaries, because the copyright owners are the authors, then you get the publishers, mm. got derivative rights in a way. Uh, and then you've got the reproductive rights organisation. It wasn't clear whether they had a role or mm. not. Uh, but because the uh, a collective licence, after we got rid of Clark's, the, the, uh, you know, the uh, a transactional approach there, because the, the blanket licence worked fairly well, mm. uh, there was kind of a meet. But I think we had to suggest, we had to propose. The CLA hadn't got into the... Well, they, I, I thought they had a trial digitisation licence from the very late 90s that you could... Um, you, you could basically opt into, but it was transactional. Transactional. No, yeah. they still wanted transactional. Yeah. Well, I think we had to then say, well, why don't we bring it into the blanket? Into the main licence, yeah, because I was getting permission for all the items when I was working on this project at UCL, and I, it was a kind of, it was almost like an add-on to Clark's. It worked no, quite no, they similar. They wanted to go back to the transactional yeah. model for digital. And I think uh, because of the <coughs> tribunal, we had a sort of precedent, didn't we, to say... Because we got... Uh, no, 
a blanket license working yeah. quite well yeah. that we then uh, pushed with the CLA. And I think the CLA probably realised that if it went transactional, that might be less work for them. Almost. Yeah. You know, it would yeah. undercut them because you'd get the transactional licences direct from publishers. And at that time as well, there wasn't as much content available in um, sort of born digital format. So we did have a lot of... Um, you know, we, there was a lot of need to for to, scanning for scanning from scanning, print. That's right. Yeah, so that it, gave them the possibility. Yeah, yeah. And then we compromised on, as you remember, the uh, uh, it would be a blanket license, but with recording of the yes, so the report, the lovely reporting that mm. um, causes the sector so much joy. I think. But <laughs> you know, I was, as an academic rather than the librarian, my view was that I thought the librarian, in a way, it's because. The librarians really want to do the right thing. Yeah. So they don't want to, you know, they want to make sure everything's above board. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they were very particular about making sure the recording took place. But as I remember, we, we specifically, I think we did negotiate where uh, the authorised persons didn't need to be the librarians. No, 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 no. They could, yeah, they could be way. anybody. It could, could be, be anybody. anybody. You had to, they, at that point... They had to be authorised, though. Um, they had to be an authorised person. And they had to be on a kind of list, but they took that away. They took that out of the licence quite a few years ago. So anyone um, who's a member of staff can can digitise material. But, it, it yeah, the record-keeping has been the one thing that has never well, people gone People weren't away. too happy with that, but no. I thought it was a reasonable compromise. And as I say, from my kind of uh, academic angle, from the theoretical point of view, it's the right to remuneration. So yeah. you know, that seemed to me to be reasonable, that uh, you, you can go ahead, scan what you want, mm. use it, but you record it, and then that goes feeds into the negotiation of the blanket rate. Yeah. So that seemed to me to be a... a and that is what's happened. That's what the, 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 the data is used for, isn't it? It, it is, goes, absolutely. You know, it's how, how they end up dividing up the... But well, we very strictly wanted to get away from the idea of the old one uh, price per page per copy. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Not, that it had to be seen essentially as a tax, not not as a, because again that would be uh, hindering the new technology. If yes. you try and price uh, the use made in the new technology on the basis of the costs of the old technology, then that obviously mm. is just it's just dug in the major approach, isn't it? Mm. Because scanning. I mean, again, the problem was scanning puts a lot of the work on the user. Mm. So, I mean, uh, the publisher shouldn't be expecting the same kind of revenue for per page of a scan because mm. they're doing nothing. Mm. I mean, you're you're making you're doing the work. The yeah. user is doing all the work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and I think they accepted that one. Mm. I hope they're still accepting that. Mm. Uh, so I think we made a successful transition to um, to, to the digital license. Mm, mm. Uh, so well, it's certainly was... used very widely in the sector. It is as the recent research that that we've just finished has shown. So it is, you know, it is. Well, I'm being kind used. of surprised it's still being used to the extent it is because yeah. I kind of saw that as a transitional, uh, because that's obviously was digitising born print. Yes. Material. Yeah. And then I thought that increasingly, as you got born digital, uh, that uh, there'd be a lot less use, there'd be mm. decreasing use of the blanket license, and it would fall back on the primary license. Mm. Uh, so that's that t- time that we started talking to JISC to try and coordinate their negotiations of the primary licenses yeah. Yeah. Uh, with our um, secondary licensing 
black mm. and and um, so I thought at that time, but I'm surprised in a way that the uh, that the CLA license has continued as, mm. as, uh, to the extent that it has. And obviously, there's still some use and importance for it, um, but. I think there is still quite a lot of content that isn't available in the way that universities want to buy it. That's essentially yeah. what the research. Well, I guess books have, books have only recently, really now, uh, started to be available. Yeah, the, it's book content. Book. It's not journals. It's, it's books. books. It's books. Uh, I think. I think what it harked back to, and not not to want to say too much stuff that about where we are currently with with current negotiations mm. and, and and any sensitivities around that. But I think it's just it takes a very long time for businesses to change their practices um, and even I would say for publishers to get their heads around what models are actually going to work mm. and that it is that tension you say if you are making revenue from an existing business model Absolutely. then transitioning to something different when you're going you're not going to jump in mm. and uh, you know, sort of run the risk that you, you, all of your existing business models are going to change but the effect of that is that it actually uh, arguably restricts the amount of money they could be making and a reliance on the old models and mm. ways of doing things could be restricting them and, and restricting students getting access to the materials they, they need want to read in yeah, well, they need to read. They need. and ideally what you would want is digital content with all of the bells and whistles that come with that and particularly making sure it's accessible to people rather than relying on scans mm. um, which are harder for people to get access to mm. I mean it's kind of unfortunate because you do get into the position where the new technologies then become taken up by disruptors of existing business models and mm. that just creates then a lot of conflict so I mean the, the uh, let's say publishers in this context obviously the publishers who've, res- who've uh, adopted this restrictive position um really uh, just lay themselves open to, to disruption. Mm. Uh, I think they probably learned in the, in the um, uh, academic publishing area, they probably learned particularly from the music, you know, the, mm. the whole um, uh, um, uh, music uh, copyright and the pirating of music and all and of that. And the Napster, Napster case. Mm. Napster mm. and all of that. And, the, you know, the transition from Napster to Spotify... Mm. Occurred in a very conflictual way with a really dramatic impact on on the old uh, 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 you know the music publishers and mm. CDs and all of that in and a way that wasn't wouldn't shouldn't have been necessary for it. Probably the publishers, I think, in the journal publishing area, they they probably managed that transition yeah. better than yeah. the music publishers did. Yeah. In the book publishing, they found it harder, but they kind of managed. I think I don't know. But I think it's, it's, you know, many of the... I, I remember speaking at um, a PLS conference about five or six years ago and um, sort of saying, well, a lot of this content, you know, students, it, it's not for their entertainment. They're kind of, you know, there's not a huge market for pirating a huge amount of, of this type of material. <laughs> for you. you know, I said that confidently and then Cyborg obviously kind of now exists and things like that, but... I, I, I still think, well, you know, it's, it's, students don't want to kind of get hold of the latest scholarly monograph in a pirated form for the fun of it. They would, if they had to read it for their, to pass their degree, they would read it. But, you know, it's, it's a kind of, it, it's a fairly limited 
Well, except there are a lot of scholars around the world who, who love... I mean, I have to say, I, I've, my last book I finished in the period where, in fact, Google Scholar was taking off. Mm. Um, so they were making quite a lot available, mm. and I was holed up in a town in the Basque Country trying to finish my book, mm. and it was a godsend to me because yeah. the library there was an excellent socio-legal library. It was a lot of stuff that I couldn't get access to. No. And, you know, what was I going to do? I'd have had to spend hundreds of pounds and, you know, get books sent to ship to me. And yeah, 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 yeah. It was impossible. So from a scholarly point of view, uh, you know, access to content, uh, easier access to content, and open access mm. really is the only way to go from a scholarly point of view. And mm. finding new, new models, by all means, uh, we do need to fund dissemination uh, but I think publishers are overstating their position. If they, they are not the authors, they do not create the content. Mm. They are disseminators. And if they use the uh, rights that they acquire from authors in a way as to restrict new forms of dissemination, uh, they're really not doing anybody any good. They're mm. not doing themselves any good because they're going to be, they're going to be sidetracked uh, by these uh, digital disruptors. Mm. whether it's Google or, or Napster or, or whoever. It was only where the publishers were fleet afoot enough. As I say, in the journal publishing area, they did go into electronic journals uh, quicker than they have in other areas. Mm. And so that probably saved academic publishing. Mm. And it, it continues to be extremely successful and extremely uh, profitable as a result of, of yeah, the steps they took. I mean, maybe overly profitable. Well, perhaps, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I was hinting at. <laughs> but one thing that, as part of that kind of historical kind of account you've given us, and I think, I hope we're kind of at the present day at this stage, um, fill in the blanks if that's not the case, but that... Jane and I were recently at a, a conference, um, which is um, OER, which is Open Educational Resources, mm. where um, people uh, who are working throughout the world to create openly licensed educational resources and to try and open sort of textbooks, open textbooks, and, so, that, and trying to get um, things moving on that. And the one thing we reflected there is that open access publishing, as in communication of research outputs there's this whole big policy agenda um, there's you know the, 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 the group of research funders getting together plan S saying as of next year it all has to be open licensed but when it comes to the educational materials and if we think back to you know your your experience out there in Africa in the 60s that that, that there doesn't appear to be the same level of um, kind of global understanding of the need for mm. open educational materials. You've got mm. this difference in the in the, the, the Europe and in the richer economies of the world where it's accepted that here's the system by which educational content is created. And, and it's then, sold to students. Yeah, and then elsewhere it's, you know, it's harder to get access to it. So I don't know whether you've been involved in this open educational resource uh, not directly. I know a bit about it. And, mm. uh, and publishers have been put under pressure. I think most publishers, certainly I'm, I'm still a, an editor of a journal and it's published by Sage. Uh, and Sage does participate in a programme. I don't think it's their own programme for, um, uh, for low-cost or zero-cost access to, to their journals um, mm. by uh, libraries and others in developing countries. So I mm. think there are those programmes. But, no, that's right. I think... I mean, open access. We open access.
practice really is a, a different kind of funding model. I, I'm, mm. uh, you know, I'm not a, a, a utopian to believe that you know you, you can get everything free. Mm. You do have to fund dissemination, and funding more equal dissemination is, is very important. Mm. And funding a, a more balanced creation of content. So, I mean, equal dissemination is one thing. So, so can uh, students and academics and others in developing countries get access in an acceptable way is one thing. But also, obviously, the other side is um, uh, can, can funding be found to encourage production of material that's appropriate for them? Mm. That they're not just consumers mm. of material produced elsewhere yeah. uh, to, to facilitate. And that was always our, our problem again back in, in the 60s in Africa, and I think still is, and still is a big problem now. There are some small publishing houses in, in developing countries, but by and large not. Uh, there were a few initiatives back in the 60s and 70s, um, but they're still struggling a lot. So trying to get mm. uh, publishing going in... Obviously, there are some countries where there is a big market, like India, where there is, I think, a thriving local publishing, but uh, mm. uh, a lot of other countries getting uh, thriving local publishing going is important. Yeah. But that has solutions have to be found for that, I think. Mm. But it, there shouldn't be solutions that, that inhibit dissemination and access, because mm. it has to start with access. Mm. But is it, is it something universities could be doing more, do you think, to um, in, you know, get involved in actually coordinating the production of this material and not be outsourcing it to others. Well, everyone should. Everyone should in lots of ways. As an academic, as I say, I'm on an editorial board of a journal and, and one of our, our editors now has a British, a British Academy grant to go and, uh, and uh, facilitate uh, academics in African countries uh, writing material for publication. Mm. So we're starting at the production end mm. Uh, mm. because that's what's important. Mm, that's interesting. But, but uh, academics should, I think, uh, librarians and libraries and publishers, obviously trying to correct uh, the inequalities of uh, both production and dissemination yeah, uh, yeah. of, of uh, cultural and scientific materials, very important. Yeah, yeah. But when you sat down and written a book, say, which is a long form publication, takes a lot of time and effort, uh, if if Presumably you didn't do it because of the royalties, because of the, you know, <laughs> thinking you were going to sell a million copies. Um, do you think there is something there for academics to kind of get their heads round about you might do a lot of work for something, but actually maybe the best business model for the, for the, you know, the benefit of the world is that you might get a small amount of money up front and that's it, or that you might not get payment at all, it's part of your salary, it's difficult. Well, yeah. that's what I found Story actually detail. most frustrating. I mean, I could see one would have a difference of opinion between the author and the publisher, especially an academic author and a publisher. But what I found more frustrating is the lack of uh, knowledge and interest of academics in 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 that whole issue, dissemination. Mm. I'm just staggered by how few academics really think about. You know, they maybe they concentrate on writing the book, mm. and then they're so pleased that a publisher comes along and offers to publish it for mm. them. Plus, they're more interested in the kudos, so they get mm. put it on their CV, it goes into their research assessment or whatever. Mm. Um, and so few academics think about what's the content of their publishing contract, mm. so they don't often look at that. To my amazement, they don't often even talk to the publisher about things like the publishing price 
the publication price and the print run or anything like that. Mm, mm. So suddenly they find that this book that they've laboured to produce is being sold at an exorbitant price mm. that nobody can afford to, to pay. Mm, mm. Uh, and, you know, what? that's not in their interest. Really. No, no. But uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a division of labour, maybe. As I say, the academics are interested in the research and writing the book and then getting the name on the cover and then getting it on the shelves of a library. That Maybe they don't think enough about... Uh, people actually reading it. About people, well, <laughs> about how many people actually will read it in the end. Obviously, they yeah. would like to, but you have to educate them. So that's where I do hope, yeah. you, Chris, and in your effort, you can do an educational job on the academics to get them. Because I've worked with colleagues on that, and once you explain it to them, they begin to understand it. Yeah. But it's not in the forefront of their minds, and it should be. Mm. It should be. The, the publication mm. price is yeah. there. Because, so, again, being in law, I'm just staggered at the price that's of some law books, but mm. that's because publishers traditionally thought that law was a, a you know, a high value market. Uh, they have obviously a lot of practitioner purchases. Yeah. Uh, so anything that looks like a practitioner te- uh, text or book will be sold at an exorbitant price, yeah. even often an academic library can't afford, no. let, let alone an individual. Uh, but a publisher is often willing to write such a book and then have it published at a price that their own library can't afford to <laughs> buy, which I find staggering. So I think we do need to enlist the academics also in uh, finding new new funding models. For, yeah, for, for yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think education is really key here, definitely. Mm, and absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we need to play the publishing trap with Sol at some point. I think we probably do, <laughs> yes, which is our board game about scholarly communication, okay. which is aimed at early career researchers, to teach them all these kinds of things. Very good. I yeah. hope you'll get many of them to, to play it. We've had a few, yes. Yeah, yeah we were playing okay. it um, last month at Oxford, weren't we, with we some real yes. academics. Yeah. And you play it with academics at Kent, okay. and I've played it with... Uh, uh, City University colleagues. Uh, yeah, and I think we're going. We're going on a world tour. Well, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. We may be taking it to some uh, developing countries this summer, but we we'll, we won't spoil that. We'll yeah. maybe have that for a subject of another uh, copyright waffle. Yes. I'm I'm uh, I'm aware of the uh, the time, and we've we've um, we've we've not asked you about your copyright hero. So I don't know if you want to briefly. Tell us, you've, you, you, you do have a copyright hero, I think, so uh, you've indicated, well, well, maybe. Since you told me you were going to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> so spontaneous. I think yes. probably the practitioners who have a, a real practical awareness. So I think probably my heroes would be uh, Mr Justice Whitford and mm-hmm. Mr Justice Laddie, who are both uh, well-known pra- practitioners who mm. were, as I say, judges, uh, but... Um, uh, Whitford was the author of that uh, famous report, mm. or the chair of the committee that produced it. I don't mm. know how much of it he wrote, but I'm, I'm sure he had a big impact on it. But mm. partic- Laddie, particularly because of the famous quote that I used to use, but I think uh, you've got the, the text of it, have you, Chris? Yes, as another member of the judiciary put it, which it starts with, so we should say he is clearly ascribing this to somebody else, although we don't know who it is. 
The fact that our system of communication, teaching and entertainment does not grind to a standstill is in large part due to the fact that, in most cases, infringement of copyright has, historically, been ignored. Mm. So that, that's what I mean about operating in the shadow. Oh, yeah. Operating in the shadow sometimes means ignoring the law. Mm. If, if, if it doesn't work, mm. then you just need to do whatever... But it often means creative interpretation of the law. Mm. Uh, mm. And that is, in fact, what any good lawyer does, is creative interpretation on behalf of their clients. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that's quite important. Yeah. Is that like creative accounting? Or is that... That's <laughs> no, I think that's usually used in a pejorative. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> creative use of the law. Well, I think it's the time where we get to um, our sole uh, question about... Uh, what is... His favourite cake. His favourite type of cake is. We have brought you some cake. I don't know if this happens to be your favourite type of cake, but do you have a particular cake that my, you're? My favourite cake. Well, my mother used to make a. a, 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 a actually, my favourite cake probably is baklava. Oh. Middle oh, Eastern baklava. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Very nice. Yeah. Pastry. Yeah. Mm. So, because my background is from the Middle East, so uh-huh. I like Middle Eastern cooking generally. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, really good. Middle Eastern baklava. Yeah. From the, I was I came from Syria originally. And oh, did you? Syrian, oh, wow, we think we think Syrian cooking is superior, but nowadays it's probably better thought of as Lebanese cooking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but obviously Lebanon and Syria are very close and they're very similar. Yeah. Uh, so uh, good Lebanese or Syrian baklava. Mm. Probably my favourite cake, if you ask. Mm. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to. I forgot what yum yum. Is. Yes, consult yourself <laughs> with an M and S yum yum, which is still quite. Sweet and, sticky, sweet and sticky, but sticky. yeah, yeah, not quite a Lebanese baklava. Mm. No, so. Uh, but I think we'll have to put that on our list. Definitely not, not at all complicated to make. No. So maybe we'll make I that have, for another one. I have made it once. You have. I have made okay. it. You've made baklava. Yeah. Have you? Well, yeah. That's good. Honey yeah. and rose water yeah. and then you have to get a lot of filo paste. Lot, yeah, yeah. It took a very a pistachio. Pistachio. For me, it has to be pistachio. Yeah, that's what I put in mine. No, it's not easy to make. No, it did. It fell apart as well. It wasn't quite perfect no, when I tried I made to cut it, a it few up. Times, but if you go to the right places, yeah. Uh, and there are a few in London. Yeah. And they make it so well that I don't often uh, venture into making my own. No, 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 no. No. Oh, lovely. Well, on that rather sweet and tasty note, (laughs) (laughs) shall we um, wrap this up and just say thank you so much to Sol? Yeah. That was fascinating. I mean, for us, because we're at at sort of this end of it, Mm. you've been on the the, the group that... um, For too long. For for a while longer than I have, (laughs) nonetheless kind of understanding that history and being yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's really really well, thank fascinating. you for the opportunity. And yeah. I hope it is enlightening and we have to learn from the past. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's not legal advice But it will have to suffice Because it's copyright waffle Copyright waffle